Welcome to Afternoon Delight. Real people and real stories. A local podcast for local artists. Hello everyone, welcome back to Afternoon Delight. It is such a delight to be here with all of you. I have had an interesting week. Um, I never, for some reason, I never understand why, do well during Taurus season emotionally. Uh, my moon is in Taurus, and I feel like right now, with the way the world has been, and Taurus season, and uh, what I mentioned last time in Lorna Brooks' episode, that this time is a really hard and triggering time for me. So I want to give a special thank you and shout out to everyone who messaged me has gave me support and continue to support me the last week. I had a really stressful, I'll be honest, and difficult week, but being around so many different amazing artists and people on Zoom and friends and family really helped. So I'd like to say a special thank you to all of you. And our next guest did an amazing job of bringing me up when I was feeling really down. I have known this guest since I was about 18, 19, when I first went to Woodland Creatures and saw her performing in the back room, an intimate backspace, but she always loves the intimate backspaces. <laughs> she is a force to be reckoned with, I think. She is fiery. I'm pretty sure that she's another Leo, because I'm always around Leos these days. Um, she is, without a doubt, such a caring soul underneath such a hard exterior because we all need to have that hard exterior in this industry where people will unfortunately um, take advantage and use people and I admire the qualities and attributes she has not to be pushed down and to hide parts of herself and that's a hard thing I had to deal with my whole life and One of the things we really had in common that I really admired and loved as well was that we both were very shy children, which is ironic because I'm a raging extrovert now and so is she. So it is such a pleasure to introduce the next cabaret performer, singer, hostess, drag artist, clown artist, physical fear artist, every single artist you can imagine. She is definitely a core artist. She really lifted me up when I was feeling rubbish during the week and I can't wait to share this episode and a few performances because she's came packing, ready to perform for all you gorgeous humans. It is, of course, Dive's host with the most, Miss Annabelle Sings. I always think of um, Judy Garland somewhere over the rainbow when I think of this beautiful cabaret performer and hostess. I've known her for so long. She knew me before I even did drag, when I was just a wee baba 18, going along to dive queer party. And she also is honestly such a fantastic performer with a heart of gold. It's of course, Miss Annabelle Sings. How are you doing? Oh, Geordie, what an introduction. Oh, lovely. I'm all right, dear. Hello, hello. Oh, oh, that's a nice introduction. We can just stop there, yes? Everyone, everyone back to bed. That's it. That's all you needed. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. Yes, I'm very well, Geordie. Thank you for having me on this wonderful show. I'm really pleased and I'm looking forward to a lovely little chat and maybe a little sing-song later. Hmm? 
well, maybe more than one sing song. I'm looking forward to seeing <laughs> what you bring episode. I'm really excited already after we've been discussing just before we went live. So this is so much fun. So for me, you know, I've known you for quite a while, but there'll be a lot of people I think that have been following me that maybe don't. And I would love for you to introduce yourself and kind of see who you are and what you do. Well, hello, everybody listening at home or wherever you may be listening. You might not be at home right now. Could be, uh, could be doing anything. Hello. I hope my, the, my voice is a dulcet tone of whatever you're doing right now. Going along with it. I am Miss Annabelle Sings. I am indeed a cabaret host and uh, performer, producer. Um, I, I do everything. I'm, <laughs> I, yeah, performer, producer, cabaret. You know, I work in the world of drag and performance in live art. Um, I'm a community artist as well. Some would call me a multidisciplinary artist, if you want the uh, fancy name. And yes, as um, Geordie said, they've known me for quite a few years now. I've been around for a long old time. So uh, go look me up. You'll find me. My website is still under uh, construction, as everybody's website has been for the last 20 years. But uh, yeah, go look me up. I've, uh, I've been around quite a few years, not just here in Edinburgh, but uh, I hail from London, but I'll tell you a bit more about that later. And uh, yeah, been working in the perfor queer performance scene, especially um, since about 2007. So that's roughly 500 years, isn't it, in, uh, in queer performance land. <laughs> look me up. That's the best way to do it. And if you can, when, and when you can, come see a live show. Ooh, they will be back one day. <laughs> I am 110% looking forward to coming to your like live shows because... Yeah, Jordan, you always used to come along, I remember. What, what, did, were you coming along even back in the days of the back at the back of a pub in Leaf? Was that when you first came along when I was doing Woodland Creatures? That was before it was even dive. It was just me doing a cabaret in the back of a pub. Were you there for those? I used to come to those, yeah. It was one of those weird sort of things that we went there for a few drinks and you were in there coming through sort of like, show on, show on. And I kind of went, oh, show? Because obviously I was um, studying theatre and usually I love theatre and I had any excuse for me to go and see performance. I was like, oh, well, if we're here, we might as well. And when we came through and I just, I was, um, I was so taken back by the work. I think for me, one of the things with your work and Dive and all these other nights has been the fact that they're so underground queer art for me you know I know that you know Scotty quite well and, and artists like that I'm just so inspired by so of course it makes a lot of sense that I was sitting there and and loving every minute of it with the work I do like oh I'm so happy so many people have discovered who I am by accident and uh, I kind of like that and so as you know I'll tell you a bit more about myself as we go on my whole career in this world was by accident so uh yeah, it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing, a happy accident, right? And uh, it, we created a really nice wee community back there in the back of that pub. And, uh, and God, when did I? Well, I did, was doing a cabaret even before that at the bottom of Henry's Cellar Bar on a Wednesday night at midnight. No, at 11 o'clock. Oh, God. And uh, that was hard work. Weekly Wednesday night cabarets. That was the first thing I was doing up here in Edinburgh. But yeah, oh, it's, great to, it's great to have these uh, people follow your career and, and vice versa. I've been following yours with great happiness and joy to see how far you're coming along Geordie it's wonderful it's wonderful you're doing fabulous things oh thank you so much <laughs> so it's a mutual loving here this Saturday for you mutual loving we just need <laughs> loving in the room I'm here for it right right absolutely right let's go back and let's find out a bit more about Miss Annabelle Singh so where did you grow up study work live before you pursued cabaret and becoming a performer I want to know the the e-true Hollywood story of this Yes, yes, the e true, e true Hollywood story, fabulous. Um, well, you might hear from my accent, I'm not from Edinburgh. I grew up in London. Um, 
I was born in Wembley, where the football stadium is, not Wimbledon, where the tennis players are, the football stadium. I don't like football, may I add? But that's where I was born. And I mean, they say that you know what you want to be when you're a wee one. And I knew what I wanted to be. I was a really shy child. So all you shy ones out there, this one's going out to you. I was and am still a very shy person. And uh, I couldn't quite get, I couldn't get my words out. I was a bit of a mute, a selective mute at times, even with my own family. Um, I was so impossibly shy. My mum saw that. She saw that in me and I thank her for that because she's also a shy one, still is. And uh, I think living vicariously through my uh, madness now. And um, she sent me off to a drama class. Little, I say drama class, we just used to roll around. We used to roll around on a Saturday afternoon pretending to be bushes and trees and whatever else we did. I was about five or six years old. Um, and we were very lucky in, she was lucky, we, I was lucky, we were lucky in the drama club she chose because I stayed with that drama, that a little working class clown in London, working class family, couldn't speak, I was so shy, sent off to this drama club and I found my tools. Now I used to, before that, used to do a little show for my mum and dad and my brothers on a Friday afternoon. See, I say show, I was singing Kylie songs into my remote control <laughs> and they, in front of my little puppet theatre. Puppets were another thing that helped me speak when I was younger and that stays with all my work now. Um, wow. The wonderful world of puppets. And yeah, so I used to do little shows for my mum and dad, little sing-song shows. And then when I tried to speak to people, I couldn't. I was too shy. So like I say, my mum saw that, she sent me off to drama club, and I found tools to be able to exist in the world. So I knew. I knew. I knew I wanted to perform. I didn't know how, and I couldn't verbalise it. Along with growing up, I was born in I was born in the 1980s, so I also grew up in London under Section 28. Thanks, Maggie Thatcher, for silencing my generation and the generations before me. We were silenced. We were just told we were just told we couldn't speak about our queerness. So I'll say it now: I did not touch my queerness until I was in my mid-20s. I didn't come out to anybody because I was silenced, as I keep saying. And I can't I can't say enough how difficult that was. Um, at the time growing up as a knowing you're queer but not being able to verbalize it um, so again thank goodness for drama and that fabulous show busy world now to link back I was so lucky that that drama club turned into a youth theater that became attached to the Pleasance in London um, and the and the Pleasance up here in Edinburgh so it became the young Pleasance and I'd been there years before that when it was just little Harrow youth theater and it became the Young Pleasants. And that is when my world opened up. When we started coming to the Edinburgh Festival, we would put on large-scale productions or youth theatre, uh, homemade shows, you know, large-scale productions, and we would go and perform them every summer at the Young Pleasants. Uh, sorry, at the Pleasants. We were the Young Pleasants. And, um, and that was my eye-opening moment into the world of theatre. We were a theatre company, right? We were doing theatre, not cabaret or anything. I had no idea about the world of cabaret. Um, until many, many, many years later. So there we go, the first kind of by accident, I ended up in this youth theatre and then ended up at the age, from the age of 12 onwards every year coming up to the festival. So I've been doing the festival for many years. Um, <laughs> so since 92 till now. So work that one out, <laughs> do the maths. Um, so yeah, and that was, uh, that was formative. I, but, so I grew up with this idea that I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to tread the boards of the stage and be an actor like Dame Judy and all the rest of them, right? Mm -hmm. 
I went and started, I, I put my head down. Like I said, I talk about me kind of being silenced, my queerness being silenced. I kept my head down at school. I was bullied. I was all the usual things, all of that, but I couldn't speak up about it. Um, so I put all of that into performance. I put all of my frustrations, all of everything, all into that weekend, that one day at the weekend that I could perform and be me. Um, again, I didn't understand that when I was young. I can look back now and I can, I can, you know, theorise and verbalise. Mm -hmm. So, yes, fast forward, blah, 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 through school. I just got through it, head down, did it, did it, did it, so I could get to college. Got to college, I studied um, drama again at college, and then I went to university. I wanted a year off. My, my family went, no, you'll never go back. They were correct. I tried to get into... Every uni, I tried to get up here in uh, up here in Edinburgh and Glasgow and everywhere just to get away from your parents, as you do when you're that age. <laughs> I ended up going to uh, university in the bright lights of Wolverhampton, um, at the University of Wolverhampton, where I studied acting, um, with the idea that I would be an actor, like I say. Now, this was my first little accidental glimpse into into the world that I ended up in. I studied just one short module in performance art. And at the time, I didn't like it much. <laughs> I studied one short module in community arts or applied theatre, as they call it. I didn't really like it, but I realised now it was the lecturers. They were drunk. They were drunk. <laughs> the community theatre ones were drunk. I won't tell them. Anyway, I was slightly litigious, so I won't go down that road. I was also drunk for most of the three years, but then it's university, isn't it? <laughs> I wouldn't say that's the way to get through things. Um, yes, so... The, I, I got a glimpse into the world of performance art and I got a glimpse into the world of uh, applied theatre and community arts, but I kind of ignored those. But I became friends with a couple of guys who were studying, and I wish I studied this now in hindsight, and I never did. They were studying um, video as fine art. Now, what I did mention before, along with all my multidisciplinariness, is, and you saw them in all the shows where the tech was able, I love video. I love making video. I love performing with video. And I discovered these two people and they became our great mates, Gary and Billy, and we kind of formed a little collective almost at, at university at the time. We were creating video, um, live art video, what you'd call it live. I didn't know live art existed, really. So we were kind of making all this stuff. Again, it was all by accident, not knowing that I was kind of tapping into these worlds that pre-existing for a long, long time. Then I left university three years later and I didn't have a fucking clue what I wanted to do I just knew I didn't want to be on stage on the theatre stage I didn't want to be speaking other people's lines so I stopped I worked in theatres for years I worked in front of house for about five years hold on let's work it out yeah about five six years after I graduated came back to London um yeah I was front of house and I worked my my way up to management level now at various theatres uh, West End theatres in London and um and then at one of the theatres I worked in, I met this person and we just kind of clicked. We were the weirdos of the group. And we, again, we started making little videos and taking pictures and bunking off work to go to the little Prince Charles cinema that's not there anymore. Might be there, but not in, under that name. The kind of the weirdy cinema that showed the weird films. And we started taking each other's pictures and putting them on MySpace. I'd show my age again. <laughs> um, and we were just, we weren't doing it. I know, don't laugh, Geordie. Laughing, they're laughing at me. <laughs> I'm hoping MySpace is going to come back. <laughs> I'm hoping it's coming back. Now is the time. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. <laughs> I laugh. I laugh at me daily. It's the way to be. <laughs> yeah, MySpace. We, and the only, we weren't doing it for anything in particular. I used to go to the torture garden all dressed up, never for the sex. 
I regret that in hindsight. Why didn't I get into the gangbangs? I do not know. But never for the sex, just for the dress up, right? So I had this friend, I was dressing up. We were going out to dress up places. We were taking pictures. We had no real thought, what are we going to do with this? We were just doing it. So we had an outlet. Now, around this time, I came out. I came out, first of all, as a gold star, well, not gold star, lesbian, lesbian. Then I went back in the club. I spent many, uh, many a year going in and out of the closet until I realised I'm pansexual. So we're okay with that now. <laughs> She's pansexual. She's pansexual, everyone. So, uh, yeah. And um, so by that time, my queerness was kind of coming out. And it was coming out at rates of knots. And it was coming out in, as dress up and photos and videos and all those things, which were not so easy to make. We had to have like little video cameras and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't as easy as just doing it on your phone and stick it on TikTok as it is now. You had to actually <laughs> edit everything and do everything. Oh, dear. Oh, well. Anyway, so, um, yeah. And then our picture just got spotted by someone. I say spotted, not by anyone like major, <laughs> but the major to my life. It was this woman running a really seedy, divey little club night in an underground bar in Dalston, Stoke Newington in London. And she said, do you want to come and perform? And me and my friend just looked at each other and went, oh, shit, we've never actually thought about performing. Fuck it, why not? And so we kind of turned our, we turned our kind of duo, we were kind of these white-faced, filthy clowns, and we turned it into a show. And that time in London was quite magical because Cabaret had died a death for many years. It was a bit of, it was an art form that wasn't, it kind of lost its shimmery sheen and it had gone right, right to the edges and people weren't really... I, you know, it died a death, basically. And uh, we just landed just at the right moment when burlesque, I say burlesque through, I've got a love-hate relationship with burlesque. You can see Geordie's face, that's how I feel about burlesque. Um, love-hate relationship, there's a lot of good, but then I feel the same about drag, as a drag creature, love-hate relationship. There's a lot of good stuff out there and there was a lot of shit. Yeah. But there we are. So um, we'll come back to that another time. And um, yes, yeah, so we ended, yeah, we came at the right moment. There was a resurgence in cabaret. So burlesque was high and um, we were there at the right moment. We were there to fly the flag for cabaret, for vaudeville and for the old school kind of entertainment. And it was during those years where I met people like Scotty and Bourgeois Maurice and all of that lot, Gatto, all of that lot. We were all around the same time, wonderful Johnny Wu, all of those lot um, who were kind of, uh, yeah, all, God, I think of all the people now doing so well, people like Bagger, Munro Bergdorf, all those people were all stomping the uh, that kind of 2005, six, seven scene in London and all over the UK at the time that was just Boom, it exploded. Just, we just landed at the right moment. And um, yeah, I spent a few years doing that, the clowning, and then I ended up working with Scotty and with Eat Your Heart Out and doing the live art political cabaret stuff. And yeah, I kind of, once I fully connected with my queerness and with, uh, with the politics of the time and all of that, it um, suddenly became apparent what I needed to be doing. And that was working on the underground scenes. I've never been interested in chasing fame for the sake of fame, that's still, you know, we're going to be dead a long time. No one's going to remember whether I got on a TV show or this or that or the other. Not interested in that. I'm interested in what I can create, what I can create and spaces I can make. And as someone who spent their life silenced, then choosing silence, and then never having a platform that I felt comfortable upon, um, I just had to make my own. 
and that in a nutshell is uh, my story. I've been talking for four days, but that's a nutshell, in a nutshell. And then fast forward a few more years and I decided mm, London is not, um, it's not somewhere I want to be anymore. The riots were happening in London. It's like, this isn't my city anymore. I don't recognise it. So off I came up here to my happy place in Edinburgh, where I used to come when I was 12 years old every summer. And here I am, the full circle. I, I always knew I wanted to live here from that first day when I've stepped on the cobble. So I made it happen. And here I am, 10 years later almost. Can't believe I've been here this long. <laughs> All right, there you go. I'll stop talking now, Geordie, for a moment. Take a breath. This is your, you can talk away all you want. This is my moment, or whatever she sang, yeah. <laughs> few things I want to kind of add to that. So it's so interesting, because I didn't realise um, that me and you have had such similar lives, actually, because I, growing up, used to perform and sing quite a lot in the house. But if I was ever in social situations in school, in big groups... I was silenced and my mum really found that quite difficult because she'd think, you know, they've got all this potential in the house dancing about putting on shows for the families, but the moment they're in a social situation, it's like they don't want to talk. They're so antisocial and really kind of introverted. Mm -hmm. So I totally really get where you're coming from with that. And it was, for me, going to the local youth theatre around the corner from my school um, through friends who they were like you should come to the youth theatre you would love it and I remember you know me and my friend at the time we never really agreed on anything and she was like I tell you you will love this I went oh I don't want to do that I'm not one of those people I'm I'm really I want to be a politician I want to be like up there doing things to make a difference I'm not an artist and she went and this is like I think 16 she's like you will love it come and I went right well I guess if I'm getting because they gave a free session for your first week so it's like right. the pay which I thought was really good so I went, and I remember, I think it was half an hour in, and we were doing a socio-political type show, and I was like, yes, we need to do all these things and write this script this way. And it got to the end of the session, and I went, do you want to come back? And I went, actually, yeah, I do think I want to come yeah. back. Wonderful. And how lucky we are to have those parents who recognise that, you know, and to be, you know, to put that in our, uh, not everyone's so lucky to have that. And uh, yeah, and, and, it breaks my, and it breaks my, why are we finding this outside of school? Why is this not happening in school? I mean, it wouldn't be the same. It's always more magical when it's outside school, isn't it? These kind of things. But, but as they take the arts and everything away from us, I just, I'm thinking, I wonder how many people like us before me, me, after me and beyond would be in very different places now if they had these tools or you know, the possibility of uh, using these tools or accessing these things earlier. It's so right. Without and finding them by mistake or by accident or your mate going, here, come along. But those are the best things often, aren't they? And I don't know if your mum is somewhere to mine in that regard, but I actually think as an adult, as a kid, I would never have thought this, but as an adult, seeing my mum in social situations and knowing the generational change between things with her mum, I kind of think my mum wanted it for me because secretly she wanted to be able to do that, but she just didn't oh, yeah. have her, do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, my mum gave me a lot of things and those being, yeah, absolutely. She didn't want a repeat of her being a very shy child and, uh, you know, I mean, at home, like you say, at home behind closed doors, she's the most, uh, you know, loud and out there person. But, uh, you know, well, but she performed on her own stage. She's the teacher for many years. And I also went into teaching. I forgot to mention that one and ran for the hills when I actually started doing it because uh, I saw how miserable people were in the teaching profession. But, uh, yeah, she was a teacher for many years, so I had a different kind of stage to perform on. Mm. But she gave me so much. She gave me, I mean, she came over to London in the 60s 
um, not from Switzerland, little working class family as well, not wanting to be a baker's wife, as she says. And she came over in the, well, 50s, actually, before the 60s. By the time the swinging 60s, 60s took hold, she was a married, so she missed all that, she says to me. But, uh, yeah, she didn't, she wanted a different life. She wanted a different life, so she came over to provide that. She didn't want to be the, the wifey, wifey, you know, waking up at four in the morning to bake bread. I know it's that one. I know it's the four in the morning. No, she didn't want She's given me so many things, and I'm so thankful for, to her and so thankful I have, uh, and my dad as well, my whole family. They've given so many things that I'm so thankful for. But I can see now, like you say, I can see it now. It takes a while for you to kind of start to see things in a different lens, I think. And um, for me... Absolutely love to ask you just because I didn't realize you were in London so long at one point yeah I'm a Londoner dear Londoner still it never leaves you and I want (laughs) to know more about you know what was I guess London like compared to Edinburgh's um, underground scene you know like is it quite drastically different Mm -hmm. well there's similarities and differences I mean the the biggest shock to my system first of all was how um how uh when I moved up here well look Hmm, I think about that one. In London, it was, I don't think, they're not, too, I mean, I can't talk about right now because I think right now it's everything's dead, isn't it? And I actually think for the last few years, it's changed exponentially. Is that the word? Exponentially. We'll go with it. We'll go with it, people at home. If, you're, if you've got a dictionary at home. It changed a lot. <laughs> um, because of RuPaul's Drag Race. Cabaret, in my opinion, has changed a lot. Now, I like... I'm not going to say I don't sit there on a Saturday whooping and hollering at RuPaul Drag Race like the rest of them. I love it. And, I, and you know, I love what it is, what it stands for, and as pro- problematic and wonderful as Ru is. All of that, love it. But it's changed cabaret, in my opinion, a lot. But we'll come back to that. So in regards from London to here, I don't think they're that dissimilar. The thing that really stuck out was how people access uh, going to bars and clubs and things in London when you finish a day at work, you don't go home in between. You go out to the bar and then you go on to a, a night. You don't go home for your dinner in between or have a cup. It's like, what is this? When I first came, it's like, what do you mean we have to start at 10 o'clock because you have to go home and, you know, do you think? Because obviously the city's smaller. We just don't do that in London. <laughs> so something as obvious as that was a real shock to my system. I was like, I have to start everything a bit later so everyone can go home and have their dinner. So that was the first thing I noticed. Um, now, one of the reasons I went to London, uh, left London is because I felt like um, it was with the riots and everything that was happening that um, and the unrest in London in, in the kind of in 2010 or whenever it was. And then before that, with the bombings and all that stuff, I felt that it was becoming a place that I didn't feel not safe as in walking down the street. I always luckily touch wood felt safe for walking down the streets of London. I was always very open and I always looked the same and, you know. I've, nothing again touch would ever happen to me like that. I just didn't feel performatively safe anymore. I felt a bit um, hmm, like there wasn't there wasn't a, a home to call home anymore, performance wise. And the politics was getting so much so that I wanted out. So I felt it was starting to. Become, I don't know. It's a, it's a it's a kind of it's like the seabed, the cabaret world, the live performance and the underground performance scene is ever changing and it was time for new people to come in I could feel it It was time for new people to come in and I didn't feel nurtured there anymore so off I went and when I came up here at first now that was back in when did I move in 2012 I felt like 
and I hope we're not there again. I felt like the scene was, um, there was nothing to offer me as a queer person, not as a gay person or as a lesbian person, or as I felt there was nothing for me as a queer person. Um. Now I came up here also quite unwell. I had a lot of mental health stuff going on. Yeah, all of that. And so I came up here to heal up a bit. So I did take a year off of doing any performing and then that's when dive happened. Um, so, um, after that year and uh, or just before that I started doing cabarets small cabarets because in as I said before if you can't find it you have to create it and there was there was nothing happening and so there is in answer to your question Geordie back to the question there's a lot of similarities there's lots of people wanting to make there's lots of people needing to create that's no different wherever we are um in regards to the underground but the differences I think maybe because it's a smaller city and because we have the massive overshadow of the festival happening every year they seem to think that culturally nothing people nothing happens 11 more months of the year so um I noticed it was just less there was less smaller city less happening less mm, venues so less people just thinking fuck it I'll try something where there was plenty of that in London at that time because there were venues that were willing to do that for you uh put give you a night for place for free to just go fuck it I'm going to try it if it doesn't work I'm not going to do it again so I think that's where the difference is back then nearly 10 years ago like for me that people weren't as I noticed that up here just as willing to just go for it and try something you know, it's so interesting you say this, actually. Really interesting for me, right, as an artist, because um, hearing you talk about the sort of drag race and sort of how you felt like you feel like things are changing and stuff. And I really felt that. And I don't know if this is controversial to say this because it's not a negative comment at all. But obviously, spoiler alert for anyone listening, Drag Race season two, we've got a Scottish queen that won, which is absolutely incredible. We haven't watched it by now, people. Come on. <laughs> But no, but <laughs> come on <laughs> right yes she I did, won <laughs> a drag show I, I told everyone and they all were raging at me and I was like well you should have watched it <laughs> and congratulations Lawrence Cheney congratulations fantastic anyway so as you were <laughs> like this was a bit of a double-edged sword in a way because I've had a few venues ask me if I've got a space for my show for the house liability and I was like oh brilliant cool because I already had one lined up and mm -hmm. And a couple of people messaged me if I want to do like solo cabaret stuff on my own now that I sing. And I thought, yeah, I would love to. But the one thing I worry for for my kids doing drag, I really worry for is that pre-Drag Race season two, there were a lot of shows. And this is not a shady comic. So I think drag artists would find this was quite shady on my part. There was a lot of shows that you were able to let anyone perform safely, enjoy themselves, put on great performances. I feel like a lot of venues now, you know, I've had people in the drag community say, we're finally going to get paid well and we're going to have shows everywhere. And I was like, and I, the thing is, I sat and was like, well, do you know what? I'm glad that money was brought up on the show. I, I, I cheered when I heard that. But it was like, yeah. I'm glad that venues will want drag now because that's, you know, it's great that inclusivity is happening. But my only concern is they're going to want a drag race formatted show. And that yeah. isn't drag, it's drag race. Do you know what I mean? And the yeah. Mention is so interesting for me because I was talking to these um, young people uh, on Fife's uh, Kirkcaldy High School. I was working with On Fife Cultural Trust, and a couple of them were women, a couple of them were trans, and they were saying, "Oh, you know, you, I can't do drag." And then I was like, "Well, I'm I'm non-binary. Why can you not do drag? And and why would you feel that way?" And they were like, "Oh, 
Drag Race and I went, right. And I've said this before, like, it's a great TV show, but it's not all drag. It's, there's- I worked with a young person a few years ago doing a kind of a costume, one-to-one costumey kind of workshop. I work with young people and I work with anyone, community work. And um, they thought that uh, RuPaul had in fact invented drag. <laughs> so once I picked myself up off the floor, but we, you know, we, we make that assumption as, you know, intelligent people that people are gonna look beyond what they, as Mary Poppins would say, see beyond the end of their own nose. But people don't, they see what's in front of them and that's okay too, but then that is up to us and up to people like us and, you know, to educate the children, you know, as they say, none of that. We're all in this together, but we can all, life goes beyond that. I do worry, you're right, that the venues are gonna go for what is safe. Um, Because they think that's safe, it's not safe though. They think that's safe because it, but TV and live is a very different thing. And that also is what I've known, I'm pointing, I'll put my pointing finger away, sure you can hear my pointing. Um, That's also what I I worry about is that people all over the country, all over the world, especially as we've got this amazing things like TikTok and all that stuff, and people could become banned TikTok famous in 13 seconds. And it's not going to come easy. It's not. And if the work is trash, it's tr- not the good trash. It's trash, whether you're in a RuPaul format or whether you're creating for TikTok or whether you're performing to the cat. If it's rubbish, it's going to be rubbish. And what worries me is that right now and for the future, especially in cities like London and Edinburgh and Glasgow, where they've killed live music and live performance with their ridiculous sound laws that they've brought in um, some years ago, it's killed late night live performance because you know you can get place shut down look at the arches in Glasgow you can get place shut down by moving in next to and going I don't want there to be a club shut down ridiculous anyway but what I really worry about with things like that and unrealistic um um you know seeing the unrealistic it's you've got to be real I mean anything is possible anything fucking is possible if you put your mind to it but we have to be real this live performance is not television and vice versa and all of that and I really hope that when we get back to the world out there, that young people who are performing, that any age people that are performing can get away from creating and making at home and on their phones and to get out of the small, you know, the bubble, overused word this last year, 13 months, to get out of their bubbles. It's a beautiful thing to have families and collectives and all that, but to go and fucking perform everywhere you can because we need people telling us, we need those silences, we need those moments where things go wrong. We need to learn our craft again. I feel there are people who now need to relearn a, that there's a craft to learn, you know? There's, and I think that's super important and I can't wait to get back out there to provide platforms again for people to come and create. And, you know, so edited. These worlds are so unrealistic. And it pains me to hear that people go, oh, I can't do drag. Well, because of one TV show, it didn't invent drag. If, we got, if you got Rue on this show, she would say the same thing. You know, you've got to, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, there we are. But uh, keep on creating and making and uh, get out there when you can. Get out there. <laughs> Great, that was really inspiring, actually. And for me, you know, the last thing I want to add to what you've just said that I think is really an interesting information, and then we'll go to our next question. Um, I DJed for Joseph Pierce's bar on Elm Row for mm. three months. I used to play just some fun, housey vibes, nice funk tunes on a Friday night, 9 till 12. And I did it for three months, and I was doing it every two weeks. And 
I went in several times and the amount of times that I'd have people come up and go, turn the music up, we want to hear it. We want to get in the mood to go out club in. And I'd be like, cool, turn up. The bar would be like, yeah, that's fine. The amount of time the police were called because the neighbours upstairs had complained about the level. Oh, it's just, why, why move next door to a bar? It just makes me mad. Up. <laughs> up, up, or whatever. It's like, oh. come on. <laughs> They really pissed me off was, you know, they ended up saying, look, it's obviously not you. Your tunes are great. You do your amazing oh. drag. It's just that we can't keep getting all these calls. And I, I just remember thinking to myself, the power someone can have in their little dial and their thumb, because I play some music till 11 o'clock at night. Come on. Like, it's just... I know. It's they, just, that's happened in the last 10, 15 years, the sound laws in the UK. And it's unfortunately councils wanting... Peace and money, 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 and we do our, and we do our, we are, uh, we do have the wonderful, wonderful. I say that through slightly gritted teeth. Edinburgh Council, you know, they're not, they're notorious, aren't they, for not really uh, <laughs> looking after the, the smaller community things and wanting. Uh, this is where I do myself out future work forever. <laughs> and wanting them, you know, it's about money, isn't it? Money and power. Something, but we will keep on creating. We will keep on making, and we'll keep on putting on music after eleven o'clock. Whether they like it or not, it's good. I am interested to see what happens out of this though, because I've asked a few people. I'm not going to say I've surveyed anyone, but I've asked a few people here and there on Insta and other places what they want to see for performance in the future. And a lot of people have said to me, "We'd love stuff to go to the daytime." You know, in this new world that we're in, wow. you know, maybe it's going to be less about evening and more about daytime. I think, oh my God, I'm going to start putting my my face on at six in the morning to do a 10 a.m. cabaret. It's just the worst. Have you ever done one in the morning? Oh, my God, it's the worst thing putting on your face. <laughs> if you can avoid it, it feels very strange. We are creatures of the night. Yep. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's such an important conversation. You said, you know, like nothing is going to stop us now, like the Starship song says. So no. it's <laughs> yeah. an interesting um, conversation. I'm glad you brought that sound stuff. Actually, no one's ever mentioned that. So thank you. So let's touch on bars and the infamous dive. You know, tell me more about what dive was and how dive came about and, and how long it lasted. And just give me the highlights of dive, please. Oh, dive. Happy days. I, so like I say, I came up here quite unwell in 2012, not really knowing what I was going to do. Just needed to get out of London and start, um, start getting well. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't very well. I had a lot of mental health stuff going on. I live very openly with my mental health stuff and, you know, control it through many wonderful things. And uh, yeah, came up here to get better. And I knew Agent Cooper. I say I knew them. I knew Agent Cooper from a year or two before they had come to interview myself and Scotty and Myra Dubois for Eat Your Heart Out when we were doing it at the Aquila. It was C venue. That was still running. So we were doing a C venue up. And she came and just did a little um, radio interview. And... Uh, I was recently single and Scotty and Myra went, yeah, go on, ask uh, ask Annabelle out, other Annabelle. So I was like, oh, all right. So I sent Agent Cooper an email and they didn't want to go out with me. <laughs> I said they were seeing someone at the time. Now, since then, I brought that up and they say they don't remember. I remember. But anyway, so that was, uh, but that was like, that was back in 2011. 10? 2010. <laughs> 2010, that I'd met Agent Cooper doing a little radio interview. Two years later, I come up and I just suddenly remembered Annabelle out of, uh, like, pop popped in my head. I still used to use Facebook back then and maybe their name went by or something. Anyway, I messaged her and went, I live here now. 
And then I, you know, like a little chit chat. And then I heard maybe two, three, four months later, Annabelle messaged me and said, I'm starting a new night on a Sunday um, at Henry's Cellar Bar with somebody called Latch, um, who Annabelle knew from, I don't know, I don't know, radio work as well. They did a bit of radio stuff here and there, Annabelle. And um, we need a host. Do you want to come and host the night? Um, and it was like once a month on a Sunday. I don't. I think they'd had one before that started as a just as a party, like a like a gathering. And I know Annabelle and I used to talk often about what I said before that there was nothing really serving us as queer queer um, people. Me as a queer woman. Um, where I felt comfortable and safe. It was all very gay male oriented or very, you know, particular look, particular, you know, all of that, you know, it wasn't, it didn't feel comfortable. And there wasn't anything really performative happening, performative parties. Um, I was still in my, fresh in my club kid days back then. I was, a, yes. I, I didn't mention in my potted history that I was a full blown club kid for years in London. Um, and that never leaves you. I may have rung up, hung up my roller skates, as they say, but it never leaves you. But I've got a feeling I might be bringing club club nights back after all this. Even I'm missing the club nights. So, what? so I was creating these club nights with somebody called Latch. And I, so I was invited on board. I won't say that I, you know, divers burst from my loins. I was invited on board. And then that's it. It just grew from there on. It snowballed. It snowballed. We left Henry Cellar due to the owner at the time, I don't know whether Annabelle told you this, I know you had Adrian Cooper and Biff on a wee while ago, but we left Henry Cellar when they said to us, I don't think it's the same management anymore, but it grew and grew and it outgrew the space, we wanted a Saturday night and the manager at the time, or the owner at the time rather than the manager, everyone else was up for a went, no, we don't want this to be seen as a gay bar, so we fucked off. Wow. <laughs> exactly, so we fucked off. And I'm to, well then fuck you, goodbye. Did you want to give us a Saturday night? Yes, I'm so glad because this is a thing you're talking about, the political thing of the queer community. I feel that, by the way, because my thing with my friends, a lot of my friends are either non-binary or women. <laughs> like, I don't have many cis gay men. Right. My young right. daughter, Celinda Soul, who's a drag queen, who's a cis gay man. And I'd said to him, you know, um, we were out having drinks in the sun last week with people, and he'd said to a young woman I'm friends with, bisexual, you know, he wouldn't mind me saying this, but he'd said, so he's quite young, he said or something like, okay, get me a drink, serve it. And I just turned around and was like, sorry, you're speaking to a woman like that? Yeah. And yeah. He, oh, shit. And you could just see him not realise. And then we ended up, we got a bit drunk and he was like, oh, you know, I, I felt, I'm so sorry I did that earlier. I went, it's fine. I went to him, but this is a thing I feel that there's just this hierarchy in the community that... Oh, my God. I mean, feel oh, my God. There's a whole other po podcast on the hierarchies in the like, queer communities. And, uh, oh, my God, don't get me started. It's just, this is why I always end up making my own work, so I'm not interested in playing that game. I do not want to know. There's enough shit going on in our lives and there's enough shit going on in all our predecessors' lives without this shite being bandied about, that we're all better than each other or what this or that, the other. Fuck that. We need to be... Yeah, anyway. <laughs> yes, yes, is the, is the uh, is what I, I agree entirely. We're in agreement. Yeah. I need where, to, where we? oh, you've just, you've came at the right time because this week I am feeling that. So thank you, you validated everything I've been feeling the last week. Fuck it, fuck it. That's my motto. I've often said, even though I want to get cremated, on my gravestone, fuck it. I live by that. Yeah. I live by it. Fuck it and fuck everyone who, just fuck it. <laughs> 
And it's interesting <laughs> because the thing with that venue saying, you know, we don't want to be seen as gay bar. You know, I've worked in a lot of straight, straight, obviously not really straight, but that sort of heteronormative venue. Oh, yeah. Let's do a queer thing when it'll make us money when we're quiet, but we don't want you here when we're busy because then... Yeah, yeah, we're ju you're just... Oh, my God. And to be honest, uh, Geordie, there are, there are queer bars. There are gay bars that work like that, too. Not just uh, straight bars. But they're, they're all over the country. They're all over the world. So let's not pretend that we're in some fluffy rainbow, uh, unicorns rainbow bum. It's happening everywhere. Um, but more so in the straight venues, and maybe that will change or maybe it won't change. That's the wonder of things like, you know, having drag on TV and stuff. It changes people's perceptions, but it also builds this unrealistic idea of what we all are. And we're not. We're a wonderful rainbow of what performance is. Not every queer performer is into drag and not every drag performer is into theatre and music, but whatever, you know, it's a rainbow just like we are. Um, so after we you know, packed up our spotted hanky and fucked off uh, Henry Cellar We went over to Summerhall. We managed to, um, Annabelle knew someone, a guy called Sam there, who gave us a space. Did you ever come to those Summerhall parties? They came to one or two very drunk. Yeah, they were in a really wonderful space at the back of Summerhall called the Animal Hospital. And at that time, it, again, this has the same ending to this story. With the less of a fuck you, we left on good terms from Summerhall. That was a wonderful couple of years where we were creating performance parties that were not happening like that in Edinburgh they were not happening queer performance parties like ravey performance parties now we ended up losing that animal hospital space which was like and it was an old animal hospital if you don't know the history of Summerhall go and look it up it's a wonderful um you know what the building was and it was an old animal hospital which isn't that cheery you know there's animals in cages and whatnot but uh, it was a vet school Summerhall was a vet school and um we had these amazing parties. We worked with all kinds of people. We, we had artists from all over the UK. Did we, yeah, we had some international artists as well coming along to these parties, and they were great. And they grew and they grew and they grew. We had artists showing their visual art. It was the real kind of the idea being like almost Warhol-esque in its scope, you know? You were just coming to be for six hours on a Saturday night. Now, unfortunately, we lost that space because somehow, like so many other spaces, needed money. And we lost the space to the corporates. We lost the space to the escape room people. And uh, they, they hired the space out, this amazing kind of windy, labyrinthine space, which is perfect for an escape room type thing. Went to them for a three-year contract. Bye-bye dive. So after that, we never really found... Um, I never really found another home again after that. We worked at the Trav for a couple of years. I also was feeling the burnout. I wanted to stop clubbing, you know? I wanted to stop the clubbing and the party vibes. That was, for me, that was kind of, I've been doing it from 2007 up to 2015 or whatever it was, nonstop. And it was time, I wanted to try something new. And then we were starting to be offered, I mean, along with that, we did loads of things for History Month. We've done stuff for Leap Sports. We were doing cabarets. I was running that cabaret, cabaret creatures down the bottom of um, uh, Leith Walk at Woodland Creatures for... I'd say a wee while before that took the dive moniker on. That was my show. And then I kind of inc we all incorporated into dive. It became um, produced by dive. And uh, yeah, we, we found a home then for a little while at the Trav. We did our lovely long project with Luminate as well, the creative agent. I know you've done something with them recently. Is that right? I, did, I, saw, I saw you share something about Luminate. I did something. I've shared Illuminate stuff because I just think what they do is incredible. Ah, I performed with that. 
at Summer Hall with Illuminate and Birds of Paradise. And I performed as part of their cabaret because I was doing a thing on um, disability and CF. So, yeah. That's right. I remember, yes. Yeah, so we've done some... Oh, God, we've done some... We did some fantastic work, but I really... Um, the reason I had to stop doing Dive in 2018 was burnout. I couldn't work like that anymore. I was burning out, along with uh, doing work in the day. So uh, something had to give. But, yes, we found our home at uh, Trav for a wee while as well. But that had its issues too. You know, we weren't being given a space inside we were with our uh, cabaret kind of theater shows this was my and this was my chance to start writing um and i was starting to write and create shows so all of that stuff that dive when we start making cabaret theater shows that was all my writing and um you know with with cooper's amazing producing and then also they started performing as well around that time so yeah. it was great to see uh, agent cooper grow as, uh, as and all of us, but really see Agent Cooper come into their own and uh, working with Biff and all that lot. That was wonderful times to see that uh, change in Agent Cooper over the months, over the years, working together. Yeah, so after Trav, after Summerhall, sorry, we never quite found our home. And I think that's really important for, um, for you know, perform, you know, if you're a performative person to have a home where you feel safe to provide and the platform feels safe for people so yeah we were a bit nomadic after that we went from the trav over to um we worked with gilded balloon for a little bit as well and i think the last show that you came to see i remember you were there was i was singing somewhere over the rainbow it was a goddess show at the rose theater that was 2018 so we did it and our shows were always themed around something and that was our goddess show and it was just around the time of the me too movement kicking off it was all kinds of stuff Oh, my God, it was a politi heavy political time. It doesn't seem to have stopped since then. <laughs> seems to have stopped for the, all my life, the politicalness of it. But, um, yeah, so it, it was a... Dive was a, a, a wonderful, incredible journey that, again, I just ended up on by accident. Brilliant. And I learned so much about myself and about audiences. This is why I keep saying people listening at home, if you want to create, you need to get out and do it. You need to put it on everywhere because you learn so much about people, about audiences, about what people want, what people need. And it's not always what you want to provide. It's not always what you've got in your head. You have to be able to learn. to, And that's what I learned doing dive is how you can mould your how you can respond rather and mold your work to what audiences want and need, whether it be in the time, sociologically, politically, economically, or the way it's just on that one night, you are, it's a craft. It's something, to, it's a wonderful learning curve. And I enjoyed every single second of it. Um, yeah. yeah. And then I had to stop. I had to for my own mental health because I was burning out and I learned from that. That's not a way I can work where I was just nonstop. It was nonstop. We were, and I think that's also partly to do is that there were no other spaces like what we were providing at the time. Mm. There's a lot of pressure on that to be a space that no one else is really, you know, it was, you know, now you're calling us leg legendary, which is amazing. But that goes to show how little there spaces was. there were providing that at the time. And maybe that we, you know, we need something like that again, a different version of something, you know, because we need those spaces again, don't we? They're disappearing. And it's so interesting because that's the house of liability. My new drag show has been taking yeah. inspiration from underground nights like Dive, like all these other nights that I've went to in Cabaret World that 
we're not there to do a drag race type show. You know, that's not to invalidate any other show that is like drag race, but we're not, that's not us. And I think it's so interesting because, you know, we talk about this as a fake performers and artists that we never know the impact what we'll do will have. And you know what you're saying about getting out there and creating it and doing it. That is so important. I keep telling my young children that because with audiences, you know, I've done stuff at Rabbit Hole at CCs. I did stuff at Lip Line when I used to host it. And you could do it at the Rabbit Hole at CCs and they would hate it. And they could do it at the, liability, um, the Lip Line show at Espionage and they would love it. And I'd think, how? It's the same performance. I've done it the same yeah. way. Up. Right? Yeah. Right. I used to take, I, I would find great pleasure in those moments of like, uh, oh shit. Audience just like, sigh, that moment of utter overwhelm. What the fuck did I just see before the clapping starts? Those were my favorite moments because you could, that's where those moments that you learned and the moments that you got heckled and then, oh my God, I used to get, we used to do shows at three in the morning when I was doing clowning days or whatever day, they would be throwing shit at you, all kinds, I've done festivals, I've been, you know, and that's what, the, the, uh, that's why I tell you youngins, I'm not that old, but I tell you youngins, the, new, the newbies to this world or even the people who've been around a long time, just get out there and do it when you can. Get out there and experience as much as you can because it's going to also filter into your art. And as much as I adore Rue and all of that lot, only having them as your, you know, your, your book to go to, you know, of, uh, of, of work, it's not going to reflect well on <laughs> the longevity of your career and, you know. Whether you wanted to be a career, it's also just about being able to express yourself too. But uh, there is a, there's a big wide world of wonderful people out there who've been doing wonderful things. You go join them. And you know, it's, it's so funny because when you talk about that sort of that flicker moment where people kind of go, what have I just watched? You brought up Illuminate. You know, one of the things that I knew, one of the moments I knew in my career that I was doing something right finally, because I could never work out what my craft was in drag and what I was doing with my life, you know. And... Yeah. You know, I did. I'm still working it out, Geordie. I'm still working it out. So, you know, it's uh, <laughs> never going to know all the answers. <laughs> when I yeah. did uh, Luminate thing in 2017, I had sat and there was a director there who I, who I don't, I really can't stand actually these days. Um, but I <laughs> them and they treated me horribly. And I thought, oh God, okay. I'm myself because someone's here that I don't even want to see. <laughs> like, and I'm going to. Yeah. It was a live art type piece where I was doing Cinderella and doing a parody of Cinderella, but it was a narrative with me talking about medication. And I thought, I think people are going to think this is really weird. So I did it. But I was so in it that I just went, well, do you know what? If they don't like it, they don't like it. I'll do it. Went on, did it. And when I finished, I was lip syncing Dream is With Your Heart Makes. And it was so kind of like psychotic the way I did it. And everyone it kind of had that silence. And they weren't doing like a round of applause for mine. They were going to go straight into the interval of the music. So there was a silence. And then I went off stage. And then Burlesque by fucking Cher comes on because they put that as interval. <laughs> But, but... <laughs> well, the wrong choice of music. Oh, inappropriate. But the funniest part about that was, I went to the side and was like, God, I just bared my heart and soul. This is really awkward. I'm so stressed. The yeah. people that all came over to me to tell me, and the one person that I really admired, that I loved, actually, I'd gotten through to, and you'll love this, I know you will, was a mm. junior doctor that came over who was gay and said, Do you know, this is really weird. And I said, right. He goes, I'm in Glasgow. But I'm here for this friends event. I was like, right. He's like, and I'm doing placement with their CF unit next month. And I went, uh -huh. and he goes, thank you so much because I'm not, I never get to see things like this. And that really helped me understand on a personal level, not through a doctor's lens. And I went, oh, Jesus, right. And that was the moment that I thought, God, I'm really doing something. So I totally get what you mean. You need to yeah, just yeah. 
dare to try and do it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so my next question: pandemic, what was work like? What were what kind of things were Say you? Say that doing? again. Sorry, you just broke up just then. Pre-pandemic, before the pandemic, what kind of work were you doing? Right, well, along with all of the performative work, like I said, I used to be a teacher, but I ran away from that. And um, when I moved up to Edinburgh, I managed to find, or they found me, a wonderful charity called Artlink. I've been working with them a lot over the years. They're a, they're a charity that provide arts for people who can't normally access the arts or uh, find it, or marginalised people, people with learning disabilities, older people, people living with dementia, all kinds of people, right? And we're providing arts. I've been doing lots of workshops for them over the year, years rather of living here. Normally bitty workshops, you know, I've been, I do, yeah, drama workshops, uh, workshops around club culture, all kinds of workshops, political work, uh, performance workshops for these uh, young people and adults mainly. We're learning disabilities, but for the last six years, five, six years, I'd been working in hospitals. Um, interesting you say that about the doctor. I'd, I, for Artlink, I was part of their, um, I was the coordinator, program coordinator for the um, performance part of their hospital arts um, strand of what they do. And up until the, up until the pandemic, I'd actually taken a year off performing after the burnout 2018. So I was burnt out, I needed a year off performing. So I really threw myself, I'd been working as a program coordinator, providing a musical and performative um, arts program for people living with dementia, stroke, and mental health in about four hospitals and dementia units around Edinburgh. And it was my absolute joy doing that job. Um, I, as long as, uh, as well as um, creating the program, I was also performing on the wards. And I would have to say those are some of my happiest performance moments of singing and reminiscing, as I call it, for people living with dementia and people living with stroke and mental health. The joy that music, my personality, and the people I booked was a wonderful thing. And you saying that about your doc, your doc the uh, Glaswegian doctor who saw your show, who said, I never get to see this in a workspace. I was so shocked in 2015, when I'm shocked and not shocked, when I first went into the very first ward um, that I ever worked on, which was a stroke ward at the Royal Infirmary, and the nurses were so wonderful. And I was so shocked at how little personality there was on wards. Now, Jordan, I know you know this from being on the in the hospitals they've got your, your personality is stripped when you walk into that whether you're working there whether you're a patient there gone you don't have a personality you are you know apart from the amazing doctors and nurses who bring you back to being you again and I saw some amazing things and I made it my mission in during that job to bring the wonderful weird world of cabaret and performance and magic and everything into the hospitals it was no different I wanted to bring that in because people needed to feel like human beings and to feel like themselves. And if there's one thing we need to feel like when we're in the hospital is like us, you know, like ourselves. So, yeah. So that's what I was doing. I was really, um, I was doing that almost full time along with doing some maternity cover. I was coordinating a um, collective of uh, adults, um, coordinating their kind of performance uh, workshops over a year, a bit of maternity cover. So, yeah, I was really thrown myself into the community arts world for a year and unfortunately I was made redundant from uh, from the hospital arts program if look it came at the right time because I certainly wouldn't be doing the job during the pandemic it wouldn't have happened but I'd just been I'd just been made redundant the December before uh, 2020 um, 
and my maternity job had finished. So I was just getting ready to get back to showland. I was preparing for shows. I had a venue. I was going to do four shows over the year. We're getting back and ready to jump feet first into showland and to apply for some funding for all kinds of things. And then it happened. So I was really deep in the community. That's why I kind of disappeared. I went into community work really uh, hard and fast. And it was a total joy, total joy. So are you, is your plan now that that show will happen when the pandemic is resolved and venues open? Yeah. Yes, I, it won't happen as the show that I wanted it to be. So it's not going to be that show. And actually it's linking with what I'm talking about. The show now, the pandemic hit and I did not do, I know one of your questions at one point is going to be, what did you do? So I won't give up too much. But I, I shelved basically a lot of the ideas. That's another thing that maybe comes with years of, the confidence comes with years of teaching or years of doing jobs like that. You have to be prepared to throw all your best laid plans and all your ideas and all that in the, out the window, out it goes, or on a shelf. And all my ideas for all those shows that were going to happen had to be shelved. They're not going to happen like that because the world is a different place. We're the same people in a different place. We're going to have to shake shit up and change things. So, yes, I'm going to talk to a venue on the 3rd, which was the venue I was working at. Um, the Roxy, hopefully we're going to have something happen. And the idea for the, uh, but again, it's all like, kudos to all these theatres trying to make stuff happen because it's all, um, who knows? I also had a great run of stuff happening. I was going to have a big, a big show moment at the Festival Theatre. <laughs> Squashed. Couldn't happen. I had, I, had, I had loads of gigs coming up in 2020 in a fucking course. The great gods uh, weren't having it. So, um but it will all happen again. I know it will. It's just going to take a bit of time. And look, I've, I've, I've survived a pandemic. I've got time on my side now. So <laughs> it will come. My idea for the show at the Roxy is to create a, a salon, to create a platform, a salon, um, whatever stage it is. So that's the, um, the next stage. So And maybe bring some parties back. But that can only happen in the future, you know, when we all feel safe and comfortable to have parties again. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Oh, that's so great. Oh, that was actually lovely. I felt like that was a really positive um, way to look at everything. Brilliant. Well done. And one of the questions you did touch talk about, sorry, it was about, you know, what have you done? So, you know, what sort of, um, what has pandemic life been for you and what have you been doing to cope essentially? Because it's been hard for all artists. Yeah. Hard isn't even the, well, kudos to you, Geordie, and to people like you for creating shows online. Um, I thought about doing it. I decided I'm not. <laughs> um, I just decided to stop. I just yeah. decided to stop. I had all these ideas in my head, all these wonderful things. And actually, I thought, you know what? No, I'm taking this opportunity to well, I pretend that I thought about it that much. I just stopped. I can think about it now. Um, I didn't want I personally didn't want to create online show because for, I, I, I didn't. I didn't want to. I, I feel that connection. You must feel it when you're hosting. And, you know, the performers as well, that connection of the live audience is gone. So it's not the same. But then you're, it's so not the same, isn't it? I've done a couple of, I did a great show for Pollyanna. That was wonderful. Wonderful Adam, a uh, polyfiller of Pollyanna. They did a great show at Paradise Palms. They really managed to get the, the live thing going. But, you know, they were funded. You know, we were, the rest of us are all funding it ourselves with 5P and, and love, you know? Yeah. And um, so I just stopped. And like everybody else, I've completed Netflix, finished it. You know, I don't need to buy it anymore. I've done it. I've watched all of it. Um, <laughs> I, I could probably start again. Recently, I got, 
I'm amazed at how much television I can watch and the shit I can watch. Who knew I love the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills? But I do. That's what I just hate. <laughs> I fucking hate watch that show. I sit there hating the audacious extravagance. But there I am next day watching another seven episodes. Oh dear, great, loved it. <laughs> it was so, yeah. Annabelle, it was that moment that during the pandemic I sat and thought, my whole life has been a lie of I need to sort my shit out, right? And I watched like, Real Housewives and thought, where's my Ken? <laughs> <laughs> and you say that's really interesting. There's so much pressure put on ourselves and we put on ourselves. And again, things like RuPaul and stuff, like this pressure of like, sort your life out. You've got to be on a show. You've got to do this. And actually, I kind of saw it as, and maybe it's being a little bit older or whatever. I just thought, actually, no, I've been given an enforced moment to stop. And to take stock for the last, you know, how long have I been performing? The last 15 years of, like, performing professionally and 35 years performing, um, you know, performing. Um, and before that, I was probably performing when I was wiggling around in my mum's tummy, you know. But uh, I just saw this as an info... I mean, I was also... I did a talk recently at Queen Margaret's University for the cultural kind of... the MA students, and one of them said to me... But Annabelle, you spend all your time, you know, well, not in that voice, but let's go with it. Annabelle, you spend all that time, uh, you know, talk, all this time in this talk, talking about how the need to create and localising and platforms and all of that, but you didn't do anything. You didn't make any new work. Yeah, they said it, but why, why have you not been creating? Now you've done that reaction, I realise. And I said, well, I'm also a human being and we never get a chance as freelancers to stop. We never get a chance because we're always chasing the next, you know, we need to, we need... We don't have the, you know, comfort of a monthly income that we know is coming in. And that's the art life. We've chosen it. For, you know, whatever your free life. We've chosen that life. Mm. And I'm not saying that to feel sorry for me in any way. But this, I also was in shock. I was in shock for about seven months. I still am in shock. My entire career and my entire community-based career, gone in one breath. So I've spent about seven or eight months just being in shock. Like I say, we joke about completing Netflix, but my God, the amount of the amount of times I watched Friends, problematic Friends, because I needed something comfortable that I knew the ending to. I must have watched all of those episodes 17 times over, and I remember it the first time round. You know, I was watching... Oh, yeah, there was, I just was in shock, free-falling for seven months. And I did a bit of work here and there for ArtLink, a few online workshops and stuff like that. And I've taken some work recently doing remote work as a learning mentor just to pay the bills, you know. Yeah. And thank goodness for the help we've had from Creative Scotland and all these kind of wonderful things. But what have I been doing? I've been taking a moment to breathe, to take stock, to look after my family. Um, my mum and dad are quite old, you know, stuff like that. I will say... I mean, it's a fucking awful situation, but there's been so much positive that has come from this pandemic for me. Connecting with people, here we are chatting now, reconnecting with people, getting rid of people, getting rid of situations, ways you are, ways you talk. But, you know, this was a chance for me to reset. And I feel like I have reset somewhat. And like the newer, you know, more feathery version of myself after what felt like a world that was spinning out control up to this point. It really did. I don't know whether you were the only one, but I've said that to a few people. It's like that, ooh, that bit in a film where you're like spinning faster and faster until the whole world, we explode. It felt like that. We were all spinning towards something we didn't know what we were spinning towards. And, um, and that's not to sound all spiritual, and you know. <laughs> that's, that's a different podcast as well, Georgie's spiritual podcast. But no, it just, yeah, I've taken this time to reset, to, 
enjoy being outside to get a bit fitter, um, to eat a bit better, you know, all the usual stuff, to be a human being. I was burning out. I was always burning out, you know. And I'm, I, no one could see me, but I was getting very emotional and trying to compose myself when you were talking oh. that. <laughs> I have, you know, you joke and go on Jordy's spiritual podcast, but I am a spiritual person. So yeah, yeah. pandemic got me in touch with my spirituality, getting the negative energy in my life out. You know, I had lost three, what I would have considered best friends during the pan before the pandemic, realized they were not being nice people using me. They're now not in my life. There was a yeah. lot of, um, a lot of kind of getting rid of a lot of unwarranted, nasty energy in my in my house and in my life that I knew was really impacting on me. Um, and it's funny how we don't, we, I think that's what I was saying, we're all just so busy. We're all, all of us, so busy and so busy, 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 this whole world that we just kind of choose to ignore those things that are waving a red flag, wearing a red fur coat, going, please get it out of, you, get, get, get it out of your life. We just ignored it. I know I did. Whereas this was the chance when it all comes into judging, um, you know, technicolour. But uh, what isn't serving you? And um, it takes a lot of balls. So well done. Well done. It takes a lot of uh, chutzpah, as they say, to, um, to boot it out of your life. So well done. And yeah, spiritual journeys, they're fabulous, you know? Yeah. So you're talking about being a mentor at the moment, like with work and stuff, you know, what advice would you give to young artists pursuing the arts just now then or wanting to during the pandemic? You know, once um, save yourself, save yourself. No, I'm not saying that. As I've said before, do it, please do it and look beyond. I mean, the mentor, I'm working as a mentor, not particularly in a performative way, but, um, you know, on a performative subject, but with young people with and young adults with autism, uh, mentoring them to be able to access um, education. Um, but there's something performative in everything we do. So what would I say to young people that I say to all my young people or even older people who are just entering um, performance world is fuck it, fuck what anyone thinks and just do it. Um, do it wherever you can. And I, same, I say the same for sex, okay? Do it wherever you can, whenever you can, as long as it's legal, all right, and consensual. So it's that they... Because <laughs> when you get to uh, my age or older, you'll regret all the things you didn't do. And I say that with... Uh, you'll regret... You will. You're not going to get to the end of your life lying on the bed going, I wish... I wish I'd watched another 17 TikTok videos... You're going to wish instead that you went out there and made a show or you went out and performed. I think of all the things that I nearly didn't do. I nearly didn't go and do busking on the tube in London because I was too scared and because I thought I couldn't play the guitar or sing. Fuck it, I did it anyway. My friend said, go on, do it. And I did it. And that, you know, gave me a singing training that I'll never get back. You know, all these things that I was nearly didn't do. I nearly didn't do dive. I nearly didn't move to Edinburgh. I nearly did just fucking do it. Because the worst thing that can happen is it's going to hurt for a while and then you pick your skirts up and you gather them and off you go again and do the next thing. Just do it and just do it with love. You'll have a great old time and keep creating and performing. Stop looking at your screens all the time and your whatever's, you know, just, yeah, do it. It will come back. There will be platforms to perform at. There will. There will. And I actually am quite excited for the future of performance world. I really am. It's so going to be a great thing. I'm so glad that you've said that. So on a lighter, more like happy, I think, note, um, <laughs> what is to this day your favourite live performance you've done? I have many. I think 
doing a dive queer party, doing See You Next Tuesday on a Tuesday night during the festival in 2016. Um, and that was the year that everybody fucking died. Do you remember? <laughs> Everyone, Bowie, Prince, everyone fucked off back to space. And that was an incredible year. The show we were doing, Homage, was such a wonderful year. Um, and I got to share a stage with wonderful Christine, people like that. But the highlight moments when I got to share the stage with Penny Arcade. If you don't know who Penny Arcade is, please go look her up. What a hero and what a wonderful human she is. That was probably one of my favorites is introducing Penny, stage, uh, Penny Arcade onto the stage. Um, and otherwise, apart from that, I haven't really touched on my live art stuff so much, but I have a diary show that I've been creating throughout my life, through my, my performative live art cabaret life since about 2009, um, called Psychomantium. And I've been adding to that show for years. And it was just, it's a way for me, it's just my life in live art form. And it's done like a seance and um, a surrealist seance. And I've performed that all over the world. And I think my defining two highlight moments for that was performing this weird live art show that I just made up out my head um, just as a way of processing unchecked mental health at the time. Um, and it's still being created now. I keep adding to it. Um, performing that at Glastonbury, performing it at Shunt, which doesn't even exist anymore, but do go look up Shunt. Performing it at uh, the Supper Club in Amsterdam and uh, just performing that weird little show all over. And most recently, I say most recently, a couple of years ago now, was performing me, a little working class clown who couldn't speak for shyness, but performing it at the Talbot Rice Gallery here in Edinburgh felt really good. And I've performed it at places like the BFI as well. It's a wonderful thing to, for this kind of little nugget of madness to be shown to... Uh, like the glistening little uh, diamond that it is, everyone's got their own little, you know, journey that they've been on. And occasionally I let it open the box and let people look at it. And those are always my highlight moments when uh, they're appreciated in all different forms by all different audiences. That brings me joy. That was so brilliant. That was so poetic. <laughs> so if we were coming, I mean, I've been to so many of your shows and I, I always will still remember that like performance of some of the rainbow just because I was going through such a hard time at that moment. Not a lot of people knew that I was getting like, you know, assessed for lung transplant and getting put forward. And when you were talking about that story about your father and, and Wizard of Oz, and that's why, you know, I could see you make that connection with me. We make his performance, but also as a friend, you probably thought, are they all right? Because sort of, you know, performance says yeah. connecting with you, but outside yeah. They're really touched by this. Why? I wonder why. Yeah. I had that kind of moment of, oh God, and I just burst into tears because I always do in theatre. So for me, you know, if we were coming to a show, what kind of songs would people expect from you? What are your favourites to sing? Well, you're not going to get anything after 2005. I'll tell you that for now. <laughs> Maybe even after 1999. Let's be honest. I'm not a modern music singer, although I do appreciate the modern music. Um, oh. I'm a storyteller, number one, and what you're going to come is a place to hear stories, to laugh, mm. to, and song-wise, like, look, I'll sing anything. I'm st for those of you who don't know, I was telling you, singing Summer Over the Rainbow, our national anthem, everyone rise. Um, yeah, I was singing that and telling a story about how my dad went to see the uh, film of it in 1939. My dad's going on to be 92 this year, and... Um, going through, you know, 10 years old in wartime, Blitz London. And that moment when Judy, when um, 
Dorothy opens the door from black and white sepia world to Kansas and opening the door to Oz and how it's all in dazzling Technicolor, my little 10-year-old dad knew that everything would be all right in that moment. He knew everything would be all right. Just that little moment of the going from black and white to color that, and all these people sitting around him that all would be well. So yeah, if you come and see my shows, you're going to hear me tell stories. You're going to hear me reminisce. reminisce. You're going to hear me take the piss out of the world because that's the only way I can do it through stories, through song, through video, through silliness. I'm a big believer in the fine art silliness. We're too serious. We need to be more silly in the world. And um, you're going to hear songs from, oh God, disco to 1920s to cabaret to you know, popular music, not that, again, not after 99, let's not be silly, but uh, yeah, you're going to hear all kinds. I particularly love the musicals, like so many queers, we connect with the musicals, so you're going to hear plenty of songs from the musicals. You've recently become a singing wonder as well, Geordie, I'm sure that's doing wonders for your health as well as, uh, you know, for the people listening, yeah, must be doing great things for you. Um, anyone can sing, we're all, we can all do it, anyone can find a way to express, but, uh, oh, yeah, if I tell you, Geordie, you're not going to come and see a show, so you're just going to have to, uh, you're just going to have to uh, take my word for it, that it's always the songs that you go, no, I love that one, <laughs> oh, that one reminds me of, no, 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 you know, that kind of thing, it's uh, all kinds, all kinds, all sorts, for all sorts. And I'll look forward to letting people hear some of them during this, so, okay. In season three of Afternoon Delight, we look at hope. In season one, I looked at, with the artists who were interviewed, how the pandemic had affected their work, because that was very much at that point in the world. Season two, we looked at gratitude. We looked at what did 2020 teach people? What were they grateful for in 2021? But for this season, we are looking at hope and sort of one moment in your life that things were going, really weren't going well, and you were maybe feeling really a negative impact of things and that one moment of hope got you through it and I would love for you to share your words or your experiences on that. All right well I'll give you a little moment of hope then and that will link to a little song that I'll sing for you. Um, oh look we've all got moments in our lives that are dark but I won't go too dark you know <laughs> not here for now but um like I said, I didn't speak very much when I was a kid and I spent most of my head down in uh, at school and then I got to the age of 16 and, yeah, things were quite hard and things were quite dark and I was having, you know, suicidal thoughts, all kinds of things. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know about queerness and then I discovered the wonderful world of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and I remember when I discovered that via a friend who I went to the drama club with me, Something, a little, I suppose, a hopeful flicker. And I know I'm not the only one. And this is why the Rocky Horror Picture Show and that has so much importance and place in our queer history. So much. We can't underplay it because this is an inroad for so many people. Um, and that moment of hope that there are other people like me out there. Um, and I got to, I think I did my last GCSE exam. We do GCSEs down south. I did my last one. My mum and dad were at work. My brothers, by which point, I think one of them had left home already. The other one was wherever he was, traveling or doing whatever he did. And um, I went and rented the video. <laughs> of the, This was in 1996. I went and vented, rented the video of the Rocky Horror Picture Show from... Uh, Oh, I wish I could remember what the little video shop was called now. It was, it was something like video rentals. It was that exciting. So I went and uh, hired it. I, I 
put it to the side and I was waiting for the day that I finished my last exam because I knew I was away from that school after that. I had no interest in going back. I felt so... And now I realise I was just so queer. I realise now why I felt so out of place back then. It was such a very normal suburban, you know, little high school backwaters of London. But, um, yeah, and then so I finished my last exam. I got home. I knew no one would be home. And I put the Rocky Horror Picture Show on. And those were, and I just, I was, yeah, it's very romanticised. You know, there was Disney birds flying through the window, all that stuff. But it was a hopeful moment for me. I knew that it would be all right. I did know. And those little moments like that have happened throughout my life. And I've kept them, I keep them, you know, close to my heart because I've had many dark moments as someone living with mental health, with depression, with anxiety, PTSD, all that stuff. But, you know, we have to hold on for those hopeful moments. Sometimes it's all we've got. Sometimes all we've got is hope. And it's just knowing that, uh, you know, there's something out there in the distance that's uh, going to keep you going, that's going to keep you right. Thank you. link nicely to the song. Thank you for sharing that moment. I hope everyone enjoys the next song by Miss Annabelle Sings. This is Miss Annabelle Sings singing over at the Frankenstein Place from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. This is song number one for my guest spot on Afternoon Delight. Darkness 
Honestly, incredible having you on Afternoon Delight. I'm so finally glad we got there. Um, you know, I love you to pieces. I think you're an incredible artist. You've always inspired me since I first discovered Dive. And I, I hope we can obviously meet up eventually and catch up properly outside of this. Um, yes, please. You're on the same road as me. We're talking. You're like four, road, four houses down. I only found this out recently. You're my neighbour, right? Don't mm, think of wonders that can happen after this, Geordie, with you as my neighbour. Fabulous. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> I did sound a little bit wrong, didn't I? I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> On social media and keep up to date with your work. Yes, as I said, my uh, my website is in uh, under construction, as it has been for the last 10 years. But um, so, but in the meantime, I don't use Facebook or anything like that. I do have a Twitter, but I'm barely on it. I really went on it just so I could read the news. <laughs> so find me on Instagram, Miss Annabelle Sings with a uh, underscore at the start of Miss Annabelle Sings. Um, I'm going to start doing on Mondays, Monday, early Monday evenings, Monday sing songs. So um, you'll be able, but I will, all those announcements are going to come in the coming weeks. And um, yeah, that can keep an eye as well what things are happening. But Brilliant. yeah. Brilliant. And we end every episode of Afternoon Delight with an inspiring quote or a lyric. And I feel like you've got something prepared to share. I do have something prepared. In fact, I am going to say, I'm, I'm going to be greedy because I am greedy. Like I say, take what you want, take all the grapes off the, out the planet, you know, all of that stuff. So I'm going to be greedy. I'm going to give you a quote and I'm going to sing you a song. Um, my song is, uh, in a moment, is going to be by the wonderful George Gershwin. Now that's going back a few years. It's still not been fully proven or, or not proven is not quite the word, fully known or not whether George Gershwin was queer. He wasn't out about it but he probably was a big old queer. Look at the wonderful work that he's created. He's got to be, right? But uh, So I'm going to sing you a wonderful, hopeful song uh, called I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise by the gorgeous uh, George Gershwin. Listen out for that one. But my quote, and I paraphrase it slightly, is by my number one hero, the one and only David Bowie. I don't know whether anyone else has said this quote, and it feels so fitting for this pandemic times and what we're about to jump into. And the quote is... I don't know where I'm going, but I know it's not going to be boring. Oh. Thank God for that. <laughs> Thank God for Bowie. <laughs>
so oh, honestly thank you so much miss annabelle sings it's been absolutely incredible oh it's been my pleasure and again thank you geordie for all the wonderful work you're doing really and keeping your family going and all of that stuff thank you really and everyone out there listening thank you for listening no thank you annabelle for being such an incredible artist mentor friend to everyone and for bringing light into the world when it has been quite dark the last few months for a lot of people that song that annabelle sung from rocky horror picture show i didn't mention this to annabelle that much but i remember when i was in the sick kids hospital i was really poorly and i had asked the nursery nurse to buy me a vhs copy and a charity shop of the rocky horror picture show i didn't know what it was I didn't know the plot line. I think I was maybe 11, 12. And I'd seen the video cover. And for some reason, I don't know if it was spiritual intuition or a higher power, but inside of me went, for some reason, that is interesting to me. And I need to see that. And I went back to the hospital, so similar to Annabelle, watched it. And I remember the nursery nurse telling mum, I'm going, Julie, I'm so sorry, but I bought Jordan. Rocky Horror Picture Show, but they really wanted it. And she goes, oh, amazing. They'll love that. And lo and behold, here I am, a drag queen later. And I've got a drag daughter performing Sweet Transvestite um, as part of our House Liability musical show. The Rocky Horror never leaves you. It has been a cultural um, shift since it came out and changed so many people's outlooks straight gay, cis, non-binary, trans, we've all came together for the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And Annabelle, thank you for bringing us all together for your episode and that performance. I'm now gonna sign off with a performance by Annabelle that she mentioned, but until then, get out and enjoy the sunshine and be a part of the light. Stay safe and remember to breathe. Right, this is Miss Annabelle Sings with the second and last song of my set on Afternoon Delight. This is I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise by the fabulous George Gershwin. Now listen up, queers. I could give you all the advice till my eyes fall out of my head, but the people who really need to listen are all those preachers who delight in panning the dancing teachers. Why don't you mind your own business? And realize there are a lot of features to the steps that carry you through. Right into heaven. Oh, it's a madness to be always sitting around in the sadness when you could learning the steps of gladness well you'll be happy when you can do just six or seven begin today you'll find it nice the quickest way to to paradise now listen up queers when you practice here's a thing to do well simply say as you go, you ready? Deep breath. We're gonna fucking make it, I promise. Oh, I'll build a stairway to paradise. 
with a new step every day.